Well, this morning I'm going to share a message that's coming mainly from the book of Romans. So if you want to find that, and it's going to center around, boy, this last song really kind of zeroed in on what I want to share today. We're going to have the Lord's table at the end of the service, having communion. I decided we're going to finish 2018 with communion, and we're going to start 2019 with communion. How about that? Back-to-back Sundays. Um, Monday night, we had a great time at our candlelight communion service, and we broke up into families, and the uh, husbands and fathers, I, I asked them to lead their family in communion, to pray for each other, and, um, and I think it went great. Um, <clears throat> I know in our threesome, we, we had someone here that was just by himself, so I said, why don't you come and join Brenda and I? I don't want to see anybody by themselves when we're doing that. And boy, just able to minister to him during that communion time, and it was so good. Um, it's, it's almost been two decades since the notorious Y2K scare. Uh, everything was supposed to go, go haywire, and here we are this long afterwards, and things still have, well, maybe some things have went haywire, I don't know. Um, but we've changed a lot. In those uh, 19 years, it'll be 2019, Y2K. Um, hopefully some of that change is good. We need to keep growing for sure, right? And especially in our walk with the Lord. Um, I'm going to zero in on a message titled, Time to Remember. And I think at the end of the year, it's, it's good to look back. And it's good to consider how this year went. There's been some painful things back there this, this year, but there's also been some growing. I've always discovered after going through certain valleys and trials and testings that my faith learned and grew more in those times than ever before. Because it tests you, it tests your resolve, it tests how deep your faith is, and it just makes those roots go deeper. And stronger, and you, especially when you're seeking the Lord and searching for answers. Um, I'm going to talk about time to remember, specifically looking over the cross. And uh, I think it's mentioned in, in uh, the back of the bulletin some things. I'm sorry there's not a place for you to write some notes there, but you can take an offering envelope and write some notes if you want to. Um, looking back to see how God has been faithful, His mercy, His grace, his uh, presence, those realities that we carry every day, and, and something that Brad shared. I, I just hope that everyone in here has a vibrant, living reality of Jesus. Not about Him, but Him. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him. There's a big difference in knowing about someone and knowing them. Spending time with them, getting acquainted and and being honest and transparent and, and letting him speak to us, letting him reveal things to us. Uh, the Passover meal, that last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, goes back to Exodus 11, where the last plague is instituted. In the next chapter, it talks about how the people of Israel was supposed to protect themselves in that last plague. Um, it was the celebration of Israel's deliverance. And every year, God instituted that is how you're going to start. This is going to be the start of your year. This is Israel's new identity. This moment 
is going to identify you as my people in a new covenant with me. And you know that the, the whole thing was built around a lamb, a spotless lamb was chosen, it was killed, blood from that lamb was taken, smeared on the door frame, and the entire lamb, this doesn't really sound appetizing, but the entire lamb, every bit of it had to be roasted. It wasn't only the blood that was necessary for that night. We think of the, how the blood was their protection, but God made a requirement of them in every house that they were to eat the roasted lamb that night as much as they could eat and to prepare unleavened bread. That was the two things that they had to, with bitter herbs. They, and it says, we want you to remember this night. This night is going to be a night of remembrance where you remember what happened here. And Jesus is taking his disciples through that celebration, that final night with them on the Passover meal. Whatever was not left of the lamb had to be burned. None of that was considered to be leftovers, scraps, to be thrown away. It was holy unto God. It was to be presented as a sacrifice to God, whatever. And it wasn't just to put the blood on the doorpost. It was to eat the sacrifices, to internalize. And isn't that what Jesus did with the bread and the wine? He said, this is, this is my blood that is given for you. Drink this. It kind of has this awkward ring to it, doesn't it? This, is, this bread is my body broken. Take it and eat it in what? Remember to me. Remember what I'm about. Remember what we're talking about here. So this is about the cross. There's three things I'm going to talk about in the cross, what we need to remember. And this is the first one. And I think these are listed on the back of the bulletin. We're to remember man's condition. You think about how cruel and awful the cross was. But it was absolutely necessary. Why? It's because of man's sin. If there's anything that shows us how awful sin is, it's the cross. It had to be that to take care of this problem of sin. Man's spiritual condition was in such a disarray that animal sacrifice was not sufficient. No matter how many animals they sacrificed, it would never take care of the real problem, the real solution, and that was the sin problem. The Passover instead foretold a sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, that would forever break the power of sin, the mastery of sin over our lives. I said something to someone this week about a, a prodigal son they're praying for. And says, you know what, I, th I think most people want... Jesus to be their Savior, but a lot of them do not want Him to be their Lord. They don't want Him telling them what to do. They want the ticket to heaven, but they want to live their life. And the Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. You cannot, you cannot share the allegiance of your soul with multiple masters. And this is what God was telling them in the Passover. There's coming a sacrifice that commands your life, that absorbs your life. God, did God accept the Passover offerings they had? Yes, but they were never able to settle the issue permanently. Hebrew tells us this. This is in Hebrews 10, 4. 
And I'll, I'll jump around a little bit, but mostly the passages are going to come from Romans. He says, he writes in Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was impossible. So how did that work? How did animal sacrifices work to bring people into a right relationship with God? It was not the sacrifice itself. It was the faith behind the sacrifice. It was them looking to repent to God. And part of their repentance was willing to do what God told them to do. And they were justified not by the animal sacrifice, but by their faith in what was going on there. But if you read further in Hebrews 10, listen to this. This is verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, remember the leading statement there, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, based on that, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. It's the body of Jesus that was to be the ultimate sacrifice. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings. This is verse 8 in Hebrews 10, if you're following along. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy. Listen to this. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was his life being poured out. You know, we tend to gauge sin in degrees, right? That's bad. That's really bad. Well, that's not so bad. That's just, I just fibbed a little bit. That's a white lie. It's kind of like we gauge how bad sin is. And God looks at sin the same way. It's all bad. And it so contaminated us that it required the life of, of, of Christ, the Son of God. If we were to take our best efforts at being as good as we could be, and put it in front of the holiness of God, the Bible says it would look like filthy rags. If we would take our righteousness, what? The best we could be. Our greatest effort to be cordial, welcoming, nice, compassionate, all of that without it being motivated by the love of God, God looks upon that as filthy rags. And that's not the way we think today. That's not the way people think. The image that we have in front of people and the image that people want to convey almost builds up this desire to like, I need to be the best person I can be so that I can come across the best I can be. And that's all right if you're a salesperson and you need to do that. But we can't sell ourselves to God. We can't convince God, look at how good I am. He looks at that as an affront because the cross was necessary to break sin's power in our lives. Here's the second thing. Just, just remember this. The cross reminds us of how awful sin really is. The second thing is this. We need to remember God's character. It reflects the character of God. What do I mean by that? 
we're to remember the gravity of sin and what makes sin so blatantly sinful is the character of God, the holiness of God, because animals could not do it. Whatever the law required, the law could not do it. The law, and even the, the book of Romans talks about the law could not save us. Neither could it save Abraham because he lived way before the law. And yet he became the father of faith. How? Because he trusted God. He trusted in the promise of God. Would you say God is love? Would you say love is the character of God? Absolutely. For God so loved us, this broken world, our sinful world, our, our sins. God so loved us in our sinful state that he gave his only begotten son. But mixed in with the character of God is really the, the defining character of God because the angels that fly around the throne of God don't say love Love, love, do they? <clears throat> they don't say that. They say, holy, 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 and they don't even look on him. Because with two wings, they've covered their face. The holiness of God is so impressive to angels who have no idea how it is to be redeemed from sin. How to be on the other side. They just are captivated by who God is in that they do this constantly. Never stop. Those angels that are around God doing that never stop. <clears throat> it's a continual holy, holy, holy. It's a declaration of the character of God. And it's his holiness that ought to put a little bit of fear in us. A little bit of fear, right? Because his holiness required more than animals. It required his son, his own son. It really required God himself to take our place. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul says that God was in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world. God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses against him, and has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. It was God in Christ reconciling to himself. It is the self-substitution of God on the cross. God is unapproachably holy, right? But guess what? He calls us to him. He's unapproachably holy in our state, but like Moses, he says, come here. Moses wanted to run. Moses saw a bush burning and fire, and the fire would not go out. And a voice comes out. That would make me want to run too. A voice comes out of the bush saying, come here. And when he gets there, he says, you got to take your sandals off. Take your shoes off because you're on what? Holy ground, God his presence made that ground holy. But it wasn't that he didn't want Moses there. He just didn't want anything man-made between Moses and him. He'd rather have his... He, it was okay for Moses to be there with his bare feet. Because God wanted him there. He didn't want him to run. 
He wanted him there because he, he wanted Moses to have communion with him. And God calls you. He calls me. He calls us every day. We might not hear that call, but he's calling us all the time to come to him. To reach for him because he's reaching for us. The cross is that invitation to come to God. And as Brad said, if there's anyone here that you're not sure, you're not sure where you're at or what's going on in your life or how close is your faith genuine, is your faith real, all these questions that we may go through, he beckons you to come to him this morning. To come to him and lay those questions at his feet and ask him to wash away all your doubts and fears and wash away your complacency and wash away everything that seems to come between you and God. Even your own belief. Rosaria Butterfield said the Lord had to save her from her unbelief before he could save her from her lesbianism. And it has become one of the most powerful evangelical forces to voice the hope of those who have those kind of attractions that God can set you free. But she said, I had to be delivered from unbelief before I could be delivered from that sin. Isn't that amazing? And I think that's probably a, a characterization of a lot of people. What stands between us and God many times? It's our doubts. It's probably not sin. Sin will follow doubt because we think, well, you know, I've blown it anyway. I might as well do that, right? That sometimes is the logic. But at the root of that is this lack of faith and trust that we can have a right relationship with God regardless of our shortcomings because he's the only one that can deal with those things. The cross beckons us. It calls us. If there's another way, if there was another way other than the cross, guess what? In the Garden of Gethsemane, God would have told Jesus what it was. Because he, with sweat and blood pouring out his skin, agonizing over this thing about becoming the offering for sin, Father, if it's possible... That this cup passed from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. That's what he was praying. One of the great writers years ago, probably some of you might not even recognize his name, is Francis Schaeffer. He's kind of like trying to read C.S. Lewis, I'll just tell you that. But he wrote a, a book called The Christian Manifesto and just a a great voice for culture and, and the Christian message in, in a changing cultural climate in the U.S. Long been with the Lord. But he wrote this. Listen to this. If there is true moral guilt in the presence of a personal God rather than some metaphysical, intrinsic... I told you he's hard to read, okay? rather than a metaphysical, intrinsic situation of what is and always has been, if there's a true moral get in the presence of God, then perhaps there will be a solution from God's side. Perhaps there'll be a solution from God's side. And God says to men that there is a solution, and that solution rests upon God saying that He is holy and He is love. 
And in his love, he loved this world, and he sent his son as a result of that. Now, in history, there on Calvary's cross, in space and time, Jesus died. We should never speak of Jesus' death without linking it to his person. This is the eternal second person of the Trinity. When he died with the division that man has caused by his revolt, now carried into the Trinity itself, there in expiation, in propitiation, and substitution, the true moral guilt is met by the infinite value of Jesus. When he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is one word in the original language. It means it's finished and it will remain forever finished. It was his declaration that the solution had been settled about sin. Sin has no power over those who trust in the cross. It is a lie of the enemy for people to say, well, I was just born that way. Well, you might have been born that way after Adam's nature, but if you're born again, you should be different. And you will be different. Paul wrote a marvelous explanation of this in Romans 3. And there's, I brought this book up here with me, and I was showing it to Paul um, before, before coming out. Ravi Zacharias says this is the greatest book that he's ever read on the cross of Christ. That's a pretty good you know, endorsement, isn't it? John R.W. Stott, pastored in London. Can anything good come from London? Yes, there can be something good come from London. But a, a great scholar examined every nuance about the cross. And I could just, I got pages bent over here. I could probably keep you for a while. Just reading some of the observations of that moment of Jesus expiring on the cross and his body going in limp and he really died. And he died for sinners. He died separated from his father. He took the place of broken people. He became that in that moment when he said it is finished. Paul wrote it like this. We, we memorize this in Royal Rangers. We did in leadership training uh, classes. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of what? The glory of God. And that's the state of man, right? Listen to the exact words that follow that in Romans 3. I'll read again. For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace. Boy, that changes that statement, doesn't it? Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. God's absolute justice is what the cross is all about. God cannot wink at sin. He cannot excuse sin. It has to be paid for, and His justice required a lasting payment, an enduring payment, an enduring solution to it. Because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's more in that statement that I could possibly try to explain to you. And if you want, if you want something to write down for a resolution for 2019, besides losing weight and exercising better, why don't you write this one down? Read the entire book of Romans at least once a month for 2019. Because I guarantee you, no matter how many times you read Romans 3 or Romans 4 or Romans 5 or 6 or 7 or 8, we will never exhaust what's in those sentences. You, we, we will never squeeze out the magnitude of what Paul is conveying to those people in Rome. And this brings me to the last point. It's to remember faith's role. The cross is to tell us that it's there for us to believe in and to trust in, and that's how it works. I think it says in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is absolutely necessary. People can say, I believe that Jesus exists. I can believe that God exists. But that does, that's not sufficient. You have to believe on him, not just believe in him. You have to put your life on him as the foundation of your life. All other ground is sinking sand. There's only one foundation that holds us in storms. And it's the foundation of Christ. How important is faith in all of this? How important it is absolute requirement of faith that brings us into a saving relationship. You know, during the worship service, one of the things I just thanked the Lord for was the day he convicted me that I needed him. And Stott talks about this apostle to Muslims out of a Scandinavian country. That really talked about Muslims who felt this irresistible pull when they heard the gospel. And that word kind of characterized that day, that moment, that night at a little Assemblies of God church in Childersburg, Alabama. When I was compelled as a nine-year-old to walk down and kneel at the altar and give my life to the Lord. To respond to this overwhelming conviction that I needed him that I, and that he was calling me. That's the faith. That's how faith responds. It embraces whatever it requires of. I want to take you to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to finish up with Romans 4 if you want to follow along. And I'm, I don't normally do this because I like, I love scripture and I like dissecting it. But you don't dissect the message. Eugene Peterson just, you can't dissect Eugene Peterson. All you got to do is read it and say, hmm, how about that? Can you do that? Listen, listen to how he writes Romans 4. I'm going to tell you, I've, I've been going through the first 
seven chapters of Romans, and I've been through it over these last days, just going through it, and it just continues to overwhelm me. I thought, well, I wonder what Eugene Peterson has to say. It's great. His stuff is great. All right, this is verse 1 out of Romans 4, Eugene Peterson. So how do we fit what we know of Abraham, our first father in the faith, into this new way of looking at things? If Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to approve him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. But the story we're given is a God story, not an Abraham story. What we read in Scripture is Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. If you're a hard worker, you do a good job, you deserve your pay, we don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that the job is too big for you, that it's something only God can do, and you trust Him to do it, you could never do it for yourself no matter how hard and long you work. Well, that trusting Him to do it is what gets you set right with God, by God, sheer, sheer gift. David confirms this way of looking at it, saying that the one who trusts God to do the putting everything right without insisting on having a say in its, is one fortunate man. Fortunate those whose crimes are carried off, whose sins are wiped clean from the slate. Fortunate the person against whom the Lord does not keep score. Aren't you glad for that? Do you think for a moment that this blessing is only pronounced over those of us who keep our religious ways and are circumcised? Or do you think it possible that the blessing could be given to those who've never heard of our ways, who were never brought up in the disciplines of God? We all agree, don't we, that it was by embracing what God did for him that Abraham was declared fit before God. It was his faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Not merely believing that God was telling him the truth, but by putting his trust in what God was telling him. If you continue in Romans 4 to 13, that famous promise God gave Abraham, that he and his children would possess the earth, was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him which Abraham then entered when he believed. If those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they're told to do and filling out all the right forms and signed, that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer with plenty of fine print, only make sure you will never be able to collect. But if there is no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, you can't break that. This is why the fulfillment of God's promise depends entirely on trusting God in His way and then in simply embracing Him in what He does. God's promise arrives as pure gift. That's the only way everyone can be sure to get in on it. 
those who keep the religious traditions and those who have never heard of them. For Abraham is father of us all. He is not our racial father. That's reading the story backwards. He is our faith father. We call Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living as a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've read in Scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do only what God could do, raise the dead to life, a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, decided to live not on the basis of what he could see and what he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of people. God himself said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham. Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence or say it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautious, skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. That's why I said Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. And it's just not Abraham. I love these last two verses in Romans 4. It is also us. That promise also applies to us. This is what Paul is saying. What was promised to Abraham is also promised to us. The same thing gets said when we, when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life, when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God, set us right with God. If the worship team can come back up, there's a, a song that I thought of, and I pulled up the lyrics of it. Jeremy Riddle wrote the song, Sweetly Broken, a great song. The verse says, At the cross you beckon me. You draw me gently to my knees, and I am lost for words, so lost in love. I'm sweetly broken, wholly surrendered. I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, am I completely surrendered? Or I'm, you know, hedging a little bit because I don't want to fail God. I don't want to come up short. What is behind that? What is behind that is we think it's up to us to make it work. That maybe I can't do it. Well, why did you think you could do it anyway? What God called Abraham to be, he couldn't be that. His body was dead, so was, Abraham, uh, so was Sarah's womb. It had to be a miracle of God. Isn't your salvation strictly a miracle? For we can't save ourselves. We make terrible saviors. We make terrible gods. That's why he says to be surrendered. I want to read the, the second line. And could we do the last song we did in worship? 
And uh, if, if our men that's going to serve communion can get ready. This is, this is a second stanza in that song. What a priceless gift. Undeserved life have I been given through Christ crucified. You called me out of death. You've called me into life. I was under your wrath. Now through the cross, I'm reconciled. Communion is the remembrance of how this works. That our sin is not solved by us. Never could be. We could never say, I think I'm just going to stop doing any sin. Well, that won't last long. Especially if you go driving on McFarland Boulevard. And you don't have to teach little ones how to be a descendant of Adam. Because throwing food and screaming and hollering and saying mine, when they can say mine, just comes natural. And we tend to make ourselves the focus. It takes the power of God to change that focus, does it not? So I want you to stand with me this morning. We're going to do this just like we have done. We're going to come down the center aisle, both sections, and these men have a, a tray of the cups and a tray of bread. The Lord calls you to His table. This is His table. This is not TFA's communion. We're having communion here. This is not our communion. This is His table. This is His elements. And He calls you. And you might say, well, I've had a bad week. This is, this is good for you to do this. It's a good point for us to say, Lord, forgive me my attitude. Change me. I'll wash away my sins. And I pray, Lord, this morning that no one in this room would ever judge whether they should take a step based on their qualifications. Because in a way, we're all disqualified. If we just looked at our lives, you qualify us to know you, to experience you, to love you, to serve you. And it's your power that takes us past our sin, that frees us from the slavery of sin so that we can live and walk after you. And I pray that that kind of miraculous work would take place in us as we finish this year and look forward to what you have in store for us as we start a new year two days from now. Help us to finish this strong. I'm asking you to work in people, work in their heart, work in their minds, bring healing to them, bring reconciliation to them, wherever they may be. Would you work your grace and your mercy in them and bring us as one family to your table? 
about you, not about us. Come and receive the cups and bread.